0: and welcome back to On the Shelf. Today we have a very special episode that we are so excited to share with you all today. That's right, another author interview. Today we are joined by the talented and New York Times bestselling Ellie Marnie about her brand new book, The Killing Code. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to On the Shelf. Today we have a very special guest here with us today, and I'm going to let her introduce herself, and we can get into this.
1: Hi, thank you so much for having me. My name is Elie I am a YA crime author from Australia. If you're wondering what that strange accent is, it's my Australian accent. <laughs> and I am the author of Nunchal Sleep, which was uh, released in 2020. And um, now I'm the author of The Killing Code, which just came out on September the 20th this year so thank you very much for having me.
2: Yay <laughs> I,
0: I absolutely loved it um but yeah so our first question it's something that dates back to the beginning of the podcast and all of the origins and it's a very it's just a fun icebreaker but just say first thing that comes to mind when I say this but if you were a plate what kind of plate would you be?
1: I was thinking about this question because um, I, I knew you were going to ask me this question and I have to say that the first plate that came to mind was um, a weights plate, if that makes sense. Um, I do weightlifting when I'm not writing books and um, so, yeah, probably like a 25-kilo
2: weight plate, Yeah. <laughs> That's so cool. Um,
1: so, I know it's not a it's not a um, porcelain plate or um, any kind of you know serving plate at all. I ended up I ended up doing a weight plate.
2: Yeah, you're being nice and strong with your 25. <laughs> okay, so our second question is: What is your go-to comfort like TV or movie or book?
1: Okay, so. Uh, comfort movies. Look, I don't tend to watch movies so much when I'm I'm feeling sad or unwell because um, I don't know. I always tend to go back to books. Um, and I have very strange comfort reading because I'm a crime author and I read a lot of crime and horror. So it's going to be. Um, it's. <laughs> this is going to sound really weird but uh, I actually tend to go back to Stephen King. Um, as, a, as a comfort read, it sounds kind of weird to say that you go back to horror novels, um, but I, they're the ones that I gravitate to. I don't know why. I was sick in bed recently and I reread all of It by Stephen King. So, you know, I just lay in bed with my 850 pages or whatever and, um, and tore through that again. I think that's about the fourth time I've read that book. Um, I also go back to old things like um, Silence of the Lambs by Thomas Harris. That's a really amazing book and the writing in it, um, even though he gets a lot of props for doing uh, interesting things with Hannibal Lecter and, and all of the characters in the plot are great, but it's the language of the book, which I really love. So I keep going back to that one again and again
3: interesting that you say that because I just watched Sons of the Lambs for the first time Ah. Uh, it was great and now I really want to read the book too. The book
1: is really good and um, the the book that came before it too Red Dragon Mm. I highly recommend that one as well.
3: Yeah I'll have to read it and that kind of segues into our next question it's what books movies TV or basically anything is an inspiration Mm. to you when you write?
1: When I write, um, it kind of varies from project to project. So I tend to immerse myself in um, whatever it is that's of the era that I'm writing in or of the topic that I'm writing in. Or if I'm, I'm trying to get a feel for a character, I might kind of dive into something that reminds me of that character. Um, so like Financial Sleep, yeah, I spend a lot of time uh, reading Th- Thomas Harris um re- rereading red dragon and silence of the lambs and i also did a lot of reading um, uh, of books by a guy called john douglas who used to be an fbi um profiler psychological profiler and his book mind hunter was the basis for the series mind hunter um, that was so amazing and deserved a second season but we won't talk about that <laughs> um so for those books, yeah, I tend to dive back into whatever it is that um, it sort of keeps my mind on the topic of what it is that I'm writing. Um, for the Killing Code, I kept going back to this book by um, a woman called Liza Mundy, and it was actually a non-fiction book. <coughs> um, it called Code Girls, and it was a it was it's an academic uh, work of research, I guess, and she investigated what happened to all the women codebreakers who were working in the US in World War II and how they came to be recruited and what kind of, you know, situations they came from and what situations they encountered when they arrived in Washington, D.C. Because because um, the women who worked in those roles tended to be centred around areas like Washington, D.C. that were... Um, you know, Allied Defense Force centers. So I kept reading and rereading that book, um, and you know, it's a big book. It was there was. Hang on, I'll show. I'll show you. Here it is. It's quite a big book, and you'll see. Look, I've got all of my post-it post-it notes, all my little sticky tabs there on the on the side of the book where I was. I was going back again and again, trying to trying to look at the details and thinking about the way those women
2: lived. It's really cool.
1: Yeah. And Thank you.
0: My okay. My copy of the Killing Code Privy actually has my copy of the Killing Code right now, but it has like tabs <laughs> on the side because I was like, I need, I need to like, what is important <laughs> here? Um. But yeah, and kind of going continuing with the writing theme um, for you since yep they're my tab. nice I can <laughs>
1: see it now I can see my copy that's your copy of the book and you've you've put like about a million sticky notes on the side yes that's great <laughs> um,
0: but yeah so you have you know a couple books under your belt now and uh, okay. at least one on the way that has been announced with like the Nunchal sleep sequel so what is your favorite and least favorite part of the writing process
1: um my favorite part of the writing process is the writing. Uh, Once I kind of dive in, I I know that sounds really lame. Um, But um, once I get really into it, you know, there'll be days when I can just sit down and it's like I can completely switch off from the world and get really absorbed in, in what's happening on the page. And it's a bit like the experience of reading something really good where you get caught caught up in it, you know, emotionally and in every way, you know, your, your senses become really attuned to what's happening to the characters on the page. And it's very like that feeling of just diving into a really great book. Um, so I actually really enjoy the writing process. Um, my least favorite part of the writing <laughs> process is probably um, usually a couple of months go um precede the writing where I spend a lot of time thinking about what I'm about to write um and what the characters are like and what they're doing and that's not always easy you know I'm I'm actually in the moment um trying to work out the details of a book that I I would like to write and I'm I'm kind of I spend so much time Uh, researching and thinking about it uh, beforehand and it it, I don't know if if you if you have this feeling but it's like um, when you're when you're winding yourself up for a big pitch in sport or or you're um, preparing something and you reach a point where you're like I just want to do the thing I just want to I just want to it you know i just want to be there it's i guess maybe it'd be like studying for an exam or something like that you reach a point where you're like i just can't absorb any more stuff i just want to do the exam now <laughs> you know can we just skip over all of the boring preparation stuff and just write write the book um and i can i find it uh, quite frustrating because um books can't be written uh, well, for me, books can't be written until they're cooked. You know, they have to be, they have to be firmly kind of placed in my mind, and I have to have a really strong sense of who the characters are, so I can I can really inhabit them seamlessly. Um, but when the books, when you want to write, but the book's not ready to be written, I find that period
2: really, really frustrating. Yeah. um going along with the theme of like books that like you have written and things so like what was the favorite theme that you wrote or like, favorite moment that's really like stuck with you after like you finished the book
1: um <clears throat> that's um that's a tricky one um with the killing code I mean I think with each book there's um I mean I'm trying to avoid spoilers here too <laughs> With The Killing Code, um, there were a couple of scenes that I really, really enjoyed writing um, and that stuck with me again and again. Um, There was a scene, there's a scene in the middle of the book where um, all of the code girls in the story, and I should explain there's four code girls um, in this story um, that's set in 1943 and they have to join forces to break the code who's murdering government girls in Washington, D.C. And um, I have, a, there's, there's a couple of scenes in the book, and one of them was um, when they all get together for the first time. You know, it's like that scene in the movie where, like, all of the forces converge. Um, so I really enjoyed writing that scene. That was really fun, where... Um, each of them had only been portrayed individually or you know, in conversations between one or two of them up until that point. And then there's a moment in the, um, the library of Arlington Hall, which is the um, facility where they work, where they all agree to meet and they all finally come together. And I found that scene really fun to write, to see all four of them finally on the page, on the same page. Um, there was also a scene in the middle of the book Um, where they all go to a big uh, party, I guess, like a gathering, yeah? It's actually a political, it's actually an event for a political stump speech and um, they go in the hopes of um, uh, getting to look around at potential suspects Um, and they all have to assume, you know, like some of them dress up and some of them go as wait staff and um, but they're all there they all kind of converge on this fancy party and um, both researching the fancy party and writing the fancy party were a, an awful lot of fun so I, I really enjoyed that. Um, there was the also, there's a, a scene in the finale, which I really, really liked writing. It's always very satisfying to um, start to draw all the threads of a story together um, so that you can, you can um, write a kind of cracking finale, I guess. And those, um, those moments are always a lot of fun. You know, th- that scene is always a lot of fun to write, but I can't tell you too much about it. Otherwise I'll give away too much.
3: Okay, so next question. What is the best writing advice that you've ever received? And also, what advice would you give your younger self or new writers that you wish you'd known before?
1: That's a really good question. Um, And uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of hokey writing advice going around. (laughs) I mean, I think you can read, there's plenty of books, Um, going around about um, how to write or how to write well or how to do things a certain way. Um, And ultimately, uh, there were a couple of things that um, I've always remembered. Um, Look, the best advice that I have to say I was ever given was um, one, a friend of mine said to me when I was struggling, I'd written three books. And then I was, it, there were three books in a series. I wrote a series called every series when I was first published, the first book was called every breath. And then there were two more books. And then um, suddenly I was like, Oh, now I'm writing something brand new and I didn't really know how to tackle it. I thought I knew how to write a book. I'd already written three, but then this new project made me feel like a beginner again. And Um, I was talking about it with a friend and she said oh yeah it's like you take it you sometimes take a different approach with every project you know it's not always like a cookie cutter thing you can't apply the same rules to every book some books want to be written in a certain way and that's that's, and then, you know, you, and then you get to the next book and you might have to try a different approach or a different way of doing things. And it really depends very much on the project that you're writing, um, how it ends up being written. And I thought, well, that, that's a really good bit of advice that I received, you know, that you really, um, you don't end up following the same pattern every time because it can be very confusing if you've tackled something once and then you you try to tackle again another, you another know, project again and you think, why is this not working? I'm using the same strategies I did with the first one, but it's not happening. Um, so yeah, please remember that every time you write something new, you may have to adjust your approach depending on what the material is. And, you know, how you are at the time, if you're under a lot of stress or something like that. With the killing code, I was writing during COVID. And that meant that I was um, crammed into my tiny little house with uh, my children and my partner. And we were all, you know, fighting for space. Um, I didn't really have a place where I could. Uh, hide myself away. I was writing at the kitchen table and I had to take a really different approach to that. Um, Melbourne was one of the cities in the world that went through um, one of the most severe lockdowns during COVID. Um, We were locked down um, through, you know, state COVID rules for something like 286 days. Yeah, so nearly a year of really severe lockdown where we couldn't actually leave our homes, couldn't go more than five kilometres away from our homes, um, and you could only leave for um, essential groceries or medical service. So it was a really intense time. Um, So I had to try a new strategy. I'd never had that experience before of trying to write while I had people literally all sitting at the same desk as me. (laughs) Um, So yeah, The Killing Code required a slightly different approach to the approach that I'd had for my other books. So I guess I would tell that to myself if I was younger, don't be afraid to try new things. Um, The other thing I would also tell myself is um, get a decent chair. (laughs) That sounds like weird advice but um, you spend a lot of time sitting in front of your laptop when you're writing a book. You know, it can take weeks or months. And um, if, you're, if you're sitting somewhere uncomfortable or drafty, you're gonna hurt your back or get sick or something like that. Um, Margaret Atwood, I don't know if you know her, she wrote The Handmaid's Tale. She said, um, pain is distracting when you're writing. And she's not wrong because, yeah, if you've got back pain from sitting in a bad chair or uh, if, you, if you're unwell, you know, because you don't remember to get up and move around and go for a walk or something every day, um, yeah, it's going to interfere with your ability to write stuff. So that's something I keep trying to uh, keep uppermost in mind. Yeah, and
0: kind of... Um- continuing about The Killing Code and also a bit about nunchal Sleep, but just um, they're both kind of like historical thrillers, but it feels weird to say like the 80s as a historical period, but um, they're both historical thrillers. And you've mentioned a bit about like your research process, but how is it different with tackling like two very different time periods for this?
1: Um. Yeah, it's Honora, you're right, it does feel extremely weird to say that the 80s is historical fiction, when my editor was like, oh, you're writing an historical fiction book, said in 1982, I was like, what? (laughs) Um, But apparently it is, and um, look, the historical uh, research for each one was a little bit different because so much more about the 80s I guess is available um, online so quite a lot of information um, I could get online and quite a lot of information had only just been declassified for the killing code um, compared to something like nudge sleep where there was already a heap of information about the 80s and the culture and the time period and um, stuff like that online um so you know i'm i guess i'm very reluctant to start a project um set in a time period that uh it's going to be difficult for me to find a lot of information about it because otherwise you're just making stuff up on the fly which i guess novelists do all the time but um you know there will always be somebody who will say to you oh you didn't get that quite right (laughs) And it's like, yeah, um, I tried to be as historically accurate as I could. Um, The the thing about the Killing Code was that a lot of the information about code-breaking women from World War II had just come to light. Um, So I guess I got very lucky um, in that um, a lot of information, a lot of interviews, a lot of oral history... Stuff had just been declassified by the NSA, and um, by and there was a lot of information now in the Library of Congress about, um, in you know, interviews with women who used to do these jobs, um, who used to break codes during the war, because they all signed an Official Secrets Act, you know, um, back in the day, and they were told that they absolutely could not talk about their job or anything. um yeah for a period I think it was 70 years so yeah um and then and then a lot of them never really talked about it to anybody yeah um so it was it was really interesting on that level to to finally hear in their own in their own words I guess what those women had
2: experienced follows a really long non-disclosure agreement to keep up with but that kind of makes sense because it was like the war and they were probably just so used to keeping secrets that's right tell it so now this might be a bit of a spoiler for your book I feel like it will like give a lot of people more interest and more insight into you so what character do you think you're most alike and who do you best get along with um, long would you ask me? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I
1: would probably um so there are four characters in The Killing Code. There's Kit Sutherland who is um I don't think it's it's a spoiler to say that Kit is uh not who she claims to be. She is a former um maid. So she comes from a very poor working class background and she's um, she's been given an opportunity to take on an assumed identity. And so she's kind of playing as being um, an upper middle class girl in this code breaking role. Um, and she's taken on a new name and, you know. Um, and then there's Moya, her supervisor, who is also working class. and But she's kind of pulled herself up by her bootstraps. And she's now reached a position of authority. She's very glamorous, she wears really fantastic clothes and, and she's also real tough as nails type character. Um, and then there's Violet, who is a black code breaker from the segregated unit, um, who comes from a comparatively middle-class family, but you know her family has kind of worked its way up to that level. And then there's Dottie, who is the daughter of a Baltimore grocer and who is basically just friendly with anybody. She has this very sunny disposition. And uh, she can be a little naive, but she's also, you know, a real fan of that, you know, treat people the way you want to be treated type um, philosophy. So of all of them, you know, I think for every writer, there's there's an element of every character in you. Um, I think, I, I don't think it's possible for me to write a character where I don't feel a little bit of understanding or like there's something of me, uh, even if it's a little tiny bit. (laughs) Um, Even in Simon Goodmanson from Nunchal Sleep, even though he's a horrifying serial killer, um, I still feel a little bit of that in me. Um, I know, sorry, that sounds really weird, but (laughs) that I should feel any affinity for a serial killer. Um, But look for The Killing Code. Um, probably Kit is the one who's closest to me. She's the one who's my, my primary protagonist, and they always tend to be the people I feel closest to. Um, also, I came from a working-class background. I'm one of the only working-class writers that I know. So, um, you know, my dad, when I was growing up, was a milkman. He used to deliver the milk when I was really young, and then he became a prison guard. So he he's always had kind of blue collar jobs. And um the idea that a working class uh girl like me might become a writer seemed like a bit of a pipe dream for a really long time. Um and yeah, so I guess I feel a lot of affinity for um underclass characters um characters who are struggling to you know make their way in the world or improve their their situation in the world so yeah
3: i don't blame you about simon i thought he was pretty cool when i read the book too
1: (laughs) i love simon
3: (laughs) and next question so in the killing code each of the chapters starts with a quote from a person who was associated with real code breakers in World War II, so how did you choose these quotes and like, why was it important to have real quotes at the beginning of each chapter?
1: Um, Okay, I guess it was important to me because I wanted the um, the real actual code girls of World War II to um, have a say, to have a voice. You know, for a really long time, they didn't have a voice. They kind of, they, um, they muffled themselves because they weren't allowed to speak. Um, they were told that they would be tried for treason, that they would be hung or shot if um, they gave away the secrets of what they were doing. And so, for a lot of them, they didn't say anything for a really long time. And their husbands, their families, their children, um, their you know their extended um communities didn't know about the contribution that they had made to the war but in fact these girls and they were mostly teenage girls you know the average age of the young women who worked in places like bletchley park was 19 so yeah for real so 19 is pretty young to be keeping state secrets and not being allowed to talk about them even after the war finished and people had assumed that you'd just been like a secretary um, And a lot of them went back to their homes. They never spoke about it. Um, they took some of them took the secret with them, you know, to their death. Um, and then uh, I've got a friend who whose mother was actually worked in signal intelligence in Melbourne, in Australia. Yeah, there was a companion, um, there was a companion code breaking unit unit for Allied um, signal intelligence here in in Melbourne, in Australia. And she was saying that that part of her mother's life was something that she never talked about and she, she never shared it even after she was released from her oath. She, she'd been holding the secret for too long, I guess. And um, my friend said that that was a part of her mother's life that she felt really disconnected from, you know, and that she didn't feel like in some ways that she knew much about her mother, her mother's like late teens and early 20s at all because she'd, she'd worked in this role. And she couldn't talk about it. Um, So I wanted these women to be able to speak. Um, I wanted to give them the credit they deserved. They never really were given any credit, even though they probably helped the war end a couple of years earlier than um, it might have ended before. And some people have calculated that they saved somewhere in the vicinity of 11 million lives by, you know, by ending World War II a couple of years earlier than it might've ended. So um, so I thought it was really important that they could speak.
2: Okay.
0: So. <laughs> All right, we're back. There's a small technical delay. Premium Zoom is expensive, but we're back with our final two questions and I'm gonna hand it over to Emma
2: and we can get this done. Okay. So, do you think your protagonists, Kit and Emma, which is a really great name, I have to say, would get along if they happened to meet?
1: Um, so, would Kit Sutherland from The Killing Code get along with Emma Lewis from Nunshall Sleep? Uh, yeah, I think, yes. And by the way, I think Emma is a great name. Um, <laughs> um, I think, yeah, they probably would. Um, although I think Emma's pretty intense. Um, so she can be, yeah, she can be quite, uh, difficult to get to know. And she's, she's very wary person. I think she's probably, she would probably be more comfortable with someone like Kit, who's also, um, keeping secrets herself and is very aware of what it's like to kind of live in that world where you're always hyper alert and, um, You know, watching what other people are doing and what they might be saying or um, how how they're reacting to you. So I actually think that Emma and Kit would probably find a lot of points of commonality there.
3: Okay, this is sort of off the script, but since we're done with questions, I just wanted to, like, ask about, so Nunchal Sleep, that was actually one of the, the first books I read that was, like, completely written in present tense, and I thought that was really cool, because it made you, made it seem like you were, like, actually in the moment. So, do you, like, you write all your books? I haven't read all of them, but, like, in present tense, or...?
1: Um. Yeah, quite a lot of them. That's a good question. Um, Quite a lot of them I do write in present tense. And part of it is I like that feeling of immediacy. You know, I think that's actually one of the cool things about YA is that uh, you're kind of allowed to dive into the emotional reality of the character in the story in a really um, visceral way you know, um, and writing in present tense is one of those ways to keep the reader with the character the whole way through. Um, and I'm actually in the middle, like I said, um, I'm working up ideas for this new book and I'm going through the process of deciding how I'm gonna write it. Will it be in first person? Will it be in third person? Will it be in present tense? Um, but I like that, um, I like that emotional um, urgency, that comes with using present tense and I like the way you get bound up in um, in the emotional state of the character so yeah that was a really conscious decision it was also you know the way that um, the story came out Um, sometimes I don't have a lot of control over that Um, Stephen King I'm going to go back to Stephen King again Um, because I've been rereading some of his, I've I've been rereading his book on writing. He wrote a book um, of writing tips called On Writing, which I recommend. It's really fantastic. And one of his uh, philosophies is that you don't really invent a story as a writer, that you just, it's like a fossil in the ground and you unearth it, you dig it up and then you kind of brush off the dirt and then um, you transcribe it. So um, Nunchal Sleep felt a lot like that. It felt very much like um, it was all there and it was ready to be written and it was just waiting for somebody like me to come along and, and write it down. So um, that book actually emerged very quickly and I wrote it very quickly um, in a bit of a white-hot frenzy. And, and I didn't feel like I had a lot of control over how it was going to come out. It just emerged. Whereas with The Killing Code, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about how I would put it down on the page and how I would tackle all of the multiple characters that were involved in that story. How I would, um, you know, whether I would write from everyone's point of view or whether I would just write from one or two points of view. You know, I kind of, I had to dig into that a little bit because there were more characters to juggle. Um, Whereas with Nunchal Sleep, it was just, this is Emma's story. She's very much present in, and she sort of demanded to be written that way. So, um,
2: yeah, that was, you know, some books are just like that. Okay, so I have an additional question. Sorry, Nora, I just thought you were unmuted. It's fine. I wasn't
0: sure if you were gonna say anything because I was like, uh oh, silence is going on too long. <laughs>
2: okay, so I have a question. Like it could have it could be mentioned in the book. I've only read one chapter because I just got the book. I've only read the first chapter, like the like a first page of the second one. So it could be mentioned like later on in the book. But um, like you know, like the book obviously takes place during world war ii so like mm-hmm. where exactly does it take place does it take place in australia and britain in america
1: oh. okay so this is really fun um because i was talking to um another friend who runs a podcast her name is kate armstrong and she runs a podcast called the explores which talks about women in history and she before she interviewed me um she was like oh this book is set in this place." called Arlington Hall that's a really cool fictional location and I was like um no actually Arlington Hall is a real place and it really exists um because back in 1942 the uh, U.S. Army bought um this facility called Arlington Hall which used to be uh, and as soon as I read this line, um, I was, I was like, right, this is a great, this is great um, because Arlington Hall used to be a finishing school for young ladies. It used to be a girl's school. So there were a whole, there was a whole um, college full of young women who were um, finishing their studies there when the U S army was, was um, looking to buy a new facility for its signal intelligence department. And so they bought up this, this old mansion, this old college, which um, has this amazing kind of like Doric columns in the front. And it's really old school type uh, crumbling mansion on, you know, spacious grounds. And it had its own equestrian center. And it had, you know, all of these other little outbuildings for um, for the use of the young ladies who who were doing their classes in um, French and deportment and dancing and you know things like that um, so the u s Army just basically closed the school as a, um as a college and reopened it almost the, almost the, the very next day as a signal intelligence facility, like girls were still packing up their stuff and leaving on the day that the 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 army took over um, so I was like as soon as I read that, I was like, yes, this is this is it, this is my entry point for a, a YA story about teenage girls and signal intelligence. And um, and the other thing that I find interesting is that um, Arlington Hall still exists. It is still um, owned by the US Army. It is actually a training center for both the US, US Army and also the NSA. So it's an NSA facility to this day. And it's just outside of Washington D.C., um, just over the river, uh, and it's about three miles away from the Pentagon, so it's it's well placed. Um, and uh, a lot of the, um, the a lot of the location details about Arlington Hall, I I really had to dig around for because all of that stuff um, is classified. The location, what it looks like today, um, there's no aerial shots or no um, internal schematics available online um, to give you an idea of what the place looks like or what even what it used to look like there's a few old I managed to find some old photos of um, what it looked like back in the day when it was still a girls college but apart from that I basically just had to make it up because nobody's allowed in there unless you're part of the NSA (laughs) oh wow
0: yeah I I thought it was really cool and also like the way you were writing about it, it didn't seem like you were just making it up, which I think that that, that was really cool. Um, but that honestly kind of reminds me, I don't remember who it was, but there was some author who was writing about like, it was like, it had something to do with boats, like army boats. Oh.
2: And he ended
0: up getting like arrested by like FBI NSA. I don't remember the details. Because they thought he knew the top secret information. He was like, no, this is just how it would make sense if I were oh to Oh my have God.
1: <laughs> so he just made it up from what yeah. he what he'd researched about boats. And then they were like, Oh, you must know the internal schematics of this classified this classified um boat. Oh my god. I hope that doesn't happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm reasonably safe living in another country. <laughs> But I haven't had any serious questions yet. <laughs> um, oh, wow. That is that is wild.
0: <laughs> but yeah, so we have one final question. Um, we like to start with the plate icebreaker and we like to end with our shop small corner. So obviously you live on another continent than us, so this would make it a little bit more difficult, but <laughs> shipping does exist. But either way... Um, you know just highlight your local indie bookstore your local bookstore or and just some good places where people can buy their own copy of the killing code if they're interested in checking it out
1: um okay this is really a good question um for um, my Australian readers, because they will know the places. That, well, they might know some of the places that I'm talking about. Um, so I live just outside of Melbourne, which is in southeastern Australia, and I actually live about two hours north of the city. So I'm in a, in a quite of a quite a kind of country area, and um, there are a couple of local bookstores to me. Um, one is Stoneman's Bookroom in Castlemaine, which is my local. And then there's another bookstore, which is fantastic, which is called Bookish uh, up in Bendigo, which is um, about another hour away from me to the north. So those are all rural locations and they all have signed copies of my books. But you guys, where are you located? Are you in um, North Carolina? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So um, what are your favourite local bookstores? Is it Quail Ridge? It is Quail Ridge. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. Um, my agent actually is in Charlotte in North Carolina. So, so yeah, I'm hoping to get there one day. I would really love to come to Raleigh and to Charlotte and, you know, pay a visit and say hi. That would be awesome.
3: That would be awesome. Uh,
1: so, yeah, keep an eye out. I just came back from the States and um, it was my first trip to the States and it was an awful lot of fun. And I had to go upstate New York and Vermont, to do some research for this book but um the next time I'm I come over I'm hoping to spend a little bit longer and I get to check out a few other places including North Carolina so fingers crossed I get to um maybe meet you one day that would be that would be very wild that would be cool though but yeah because there is
0: all of this has been a very long process of getting to the point of this interview of just like all the things going on um so I'm really grateful that we've gotten this um all to happen that you're able to like call it's like almost it is 9 a.m where you are now and yes it is you know like I
1: just I really appreciate it um
0: yeah you're very very welcome
2: it's
1: really delightful (laughs) to be able to speak to you like I said I think you're doing amazing things with this podcast so yeah keep going you guys are doing (laughs) great thank you
0: um but yeah so that is our show um let's see if i can remember what we're doing next week off the top of my head my guess is that i can't so i'm <laughs> you know <laughs> seems about right but um but yeah hold on next week is the 16th and it is oh we're talking about spooky and gothic books or you know halloween october i'm looking forward to that gonna be quite a lot of fun um so hopefully listeners out there in the internet world you'll come back for that um and this was emma's first ever episode on the podcast so i'm very you know i'm proud for for joining um only took a tiny bit of convincing on my part since (laughs) i see her every day (laughs) um but yeah so good job emma um Thank you. Thank you again so much. Like I literally can't thank you enough. Um, This was a really cool experience. Prithvi, final thoughts, words?
3: I just wanted to say that it was, so I read Nunchal Sleep. I saw it in Barnes and Noble on like a bookshelf a few months ago. I thought the cover was really cool and I read the little blurb on the back and I bought it and then I read it and I was like in the podcast group chat, this book is really good. And Anora, like a week later was like mentioned that she got an interview possibly with you and I was like wait I just (laughs) read her book and it was really good and then I've been super excited for like the past few months so
1: yeah. Prithvi it's been a real pleasure to be here and you'll be excited to know oh hang on look I'm going to show you something okay but you have to be very quiet about it. Look at that, there you go. I am showing them my art copy of Some Shall Break. So the sequel to None Shall Sleep, Some Shall Break comes out in June next year. I am so pumped for this book to come out. It's it's going to um, blow the top of your head off. Um, (laughs) And I say that as the person who wrote it. Um, I really, really am excited about Some Shall Break's release next year. yeah, I've worked really hard on that book and enjoyed it um, all the way through. And yeah, I hope you like it as much as you liked Nunshall Sleep. Thank you so much for reading. Oh, and thank you so much for having me, Honora and Emma and Prithvi. It's been an absolute delight to be here. Oh, I'm
0: so excited. I was trying, like Prithvi has been talking like on and on about nunshell sleep for the longest time and <laughs> I like I got a Kindle copy of it I'm only 30% through but I'm enjoying it so much and like I'm excited by just like
1: there's another book on the horizon oh. yeah well, <laughs> it's another book on the horizon any minute now
0: <laughs> well thank you again listeners for being here. We appreciate your support and, you know, listening to a bunch of North Carolina teenagers talk about whatever literature thing you can think of. Um, We'll be be back next week. Um, And just thank you again. If you enjoyed this interview, make sure to check out our last author interview with the amazing Talene Voscuni. And stay tuned for more this month. Check out the show notes for a link to Ellie's local bookstore, as well as her own, so you can buy your very own copy of The Killing Code. We'll be back next week with even more, so stay tuned. And until next time,
2: I'm Honora Quinn, and this is On the Shelf.